inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I am your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. I'm so glad you're here. Happy Thursday. How are you? Just want to check in. Um, this week we, we had a film day. I don't film all the time. If you don't know that I bulk film my YouTube videos, meaning I at least do like two or more. Um, usually we film three on a film day, but on this Tuesday of this week, we filmed four. So I've definitely, it like drained out my energy. So I wasn't able to do this podcast in the normal time that I do. And I had to give myself a little break so I could like recharge. So we are here on a Thursday filming this. Um, And today we actually have 10 questions. There were so many that had a ton of thumbs ups. And it's funny, sometimes when I'm going through them, there'll be like five that all have the same amount of thumbs ups. And this week was one of those uh, instances. And if you're wondering where I gather the questions, they are on the community tab of the YouTube channel called Opinions That Don't Matter. That's the name of the podcast that I have with my husband, Sean, and that is where these podcasts live if you're wanting to watch and listen in YouTube. Without further ado, let's jump into that first question. The first question says, hey, Katie, I was wondering if you have any tips on telling the difference between an intrusive thought and a real memory. And is it possible to create false memories from intrusive thoughts? Now, the easiest way to talk about the difference between intrusive thoughts and actual memories is intrusive thoughts are usually, this is going to sound intense, but it's just the truth, usually violent or sexual in nature. And they're completely ego dystonic, meaning we don't like that we have them. We wish that they weren't there. And we think that we're a bad person because we're having them. Now, a real memory is usually tied to a bigger story. An intrusive thought is more like a blip. Like we'll have intrusive thoughts that are like, I could just run that person over. Or I wonder if I could have sex with that person. Or I could just jump right off of this, right? There's random out of character, ego dystonic, meaning doesn't feel good to us. It's like against who we believe we are. And they just kind of pop out of nowhere. And they're, again, violent and sexual in nature. Now, real memories obviously can be violent or sexual in nature, depending on what's happened in our life. But these are fuller stories. And we don't, they aren't only violent or sexual. They usually have more to them. And they don't, like intrusive thoughts are about like random, like I could be standing in line at the grocery store and think I could just, you know, kill that person or something. And then immediately I'm like, what is wrong with me? Why would I think that? And there's like this judgment and shame that kind of goes along with it. Whereas memories have more stories to them. We're usually involved in them directly. It's like a replay of something. So does that make sense? It's like intrusive thoughts are just thoughts. Boop, these little bubbly things that pop up where we have a a thought about someone or something that we could do. And then a memory is like more of a storyline about something that we did in the past and we're part of it. Um, and so they're, they're very different really. And then the question, is it possible to create false memories from intrusive thoughts? Not in my experience, again, because intrusive thoughts have no context and no story around them. They're usually like these short little things of like, oh, I could do that. Or, oh, I wonder about this, like maybe two sentences worth of thought. And that's really it. And so if we're having these, uh, I would call them like flashes of memory, from things that happened to us that were violent or sexual in nature, and they're disturbing and upsetting, but we feel like we were part of them, chances are that 
is a repressed memory that's being recovered, usually through therapeutic work or having something similar take place in our life. And that's something that I would talk about with your therapist and kind of consider and work through because you're not creating false memories. It's very common to think that when we have a a repressed memory bubble up, that it's false and that it never really happened and we're making it up. But in my experience, and also the research supports, if you haven't read The Body Keeps the Score, I'm forgetting the name of the researcher. It's not, uh, you know, Bessel van der Kolk. It's not the person who wrote Body Keeps the Score, but he even talks about this researcher, anyway, who did a bunch of research into uh, trauma memories or traumatic memory loss and recovery of them. And overall, throughout his research and following hundreds of people we recognize that you can actually trust these uh, repressed memories when they come back to be like these trauma memories that make themselves known again. You can trust those. And so do I think you're creating false memories through intrusive thoughts? No. There's a comment on this that also can intrusive thoughts be a whole scene that plays out in your head like a horror movie on repeat that you have no control over. Does this make me a horrible horrible person? No, it doesn't make you a horrible person. And intrusive thoughts are kind of kind of like that. They can be really short where it's like, I could do this. Boop, it's just a thought. Yoop, boop, it's in and out. Or it can be a scene of like something could happen. Like I could have sex with this person or I could harm this person or myself or something like that. And it kind of is on loop. Again, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but in my experience, these intrusive thoughts are are short. They're not long drawn out scenarios where we remember and we can like think on something for a long period of time. They're little short scenarios. Again, tending to be, I think, I forget the percentage, but let's say it's like 80% are violence or sexual in nature. And so, yes, you can have these little scenes of what could happen, like that you could do those things and it can it can play out in your head over and over kind of on loop and you have no control over them. Hence the term intrusive. They just like bust in there without there. It's, you know, not consensual. We don't want them there. It's very frustrating and it doesn't make you a bad person. Intrusive thoughts are are interesting because it's it's part of uh, OCD from from my experience and what we know. Intrusive thoughts are usually part of what's known as pure OOCD, meaning the obsessions and the compulsions are things that are done in our our mind. I give this I gave this example this is like months ago, but back when I was a kid, I was going through this really stressful period where I was like, um, I was studying for like the big exam. I had this big exam coming up. I was trying out for uh, for varsity team. I was doing all this stuff, and I went through this short period probably like six months where I would spell everything out in my head before I would say it. And I don't really even know where this came from, right? It doesn't make any sense, but it was all in my head, right? I would think through what I was going to say. I would spell it out in my head and then I would say it. And obviously it got to be very difficult and it impaired my ability to have relationships and communicate with people in a a speedy manner, right? It was like really messing me up. And so I was able to stop it through just essentially not doing it and dealing with the anxiety that came along with it. And that's kind of that ang- that OCD feeling where the anxiety builds. And then we realize nothing bad is going to happen if we don't do it. Whatever the compulsion was for me, it was like spelling things out before I said them. Um, and then slowly that anxiety goes down and we don't have that urge anymore. And so um, it doesn't, you know, it's normal that we don't, you have no control over them. That just happens. And so intrusive thoughts, again, are kind of part of OCD and they're kind of part of that, like our brain searching for any kind of threat in our environment. And if it doesn't find any, it like creates one. 
And I think that's that's my hypothesis as to why they tend to be violent or sexual in nature is because our body's like wired to to look for any threat. And when we're highly anxious and we're sure something's wrong, right? We're sure we have this uncontrollable worry. Something is going to go wrong. Then we're going to try to create a reason to feel that anxious. And I think that's kind of where those intrusive thoughts come from. But that's just my hypothesis. Now, that's Roxy doesn't agree. Um, In addition, someone asked, how can you tell the difference between having intrusive thoughts and something actually being wrong with you, like suicidal ideation or antisocial stuff? And does everyone have intrusive thoughts? Again, going back to you know, what I was talking about earlier, intrusive thoughts are ego dystonic. We don't like them. They're not, they don't feel good to us. They don't, it's not what we want in our life. On the flip side, uh, ego syntonic, meaning it is in line with who we believe we are and it feels good for us, is more of the antisocial type of stuff. And that's really how I would differentiate. Now, suicidal ideation is is tricky. I don't, because we can, we can like those thoughts and we cannot. It can be ego dystonic or ego syntonic, but that has nothing to do. That's more, that's still, I wouldn't call it intrusive thoughts, suicidal ideations. I guess you can, because they can be violent or sexual in nature, but that would be ego dystonic again. You, if, you, if you're enjoying your suicidal ideations and it feels like it's who you are and what you want, I would assume that that's part of, uh, you know, part of something else going on, like part of a major depressive disorder or in response to maybe, you know, a loss in the family or something happening in your life, some circumstance. But that's how I would tease that out. I hope that makes sense. I know it's kind of complicated, but intrusive thoughts are ego dystonic, meaning we don't like them. And stuff like antisocial personality disorder or things like that, um, that's ego syntonic, meaning it feels good. It's essentially the difference between OCD, which is obsessive compulsive disorder. It's ego dystonic. We don't like it. It doesn't feel good. It's uncomfortable. And anti or and obsessive compulsive personality disorder, OCPD, which is ego syntonic, meaning we like it. We prefer it that way. And it feels good to be able to act out in those symptoms. Okay. And that's without me getting into too much detail. And I have videos about OCPD if you want to learn more. There was a final comment on this said, also, is there a difference between automatic thoughts and intrusive thoughts. It feels like my therapist uses them interchangeably. I think there's a big difference, and here's why. And I can also understand why a therapist might use them interchangeably because the words themselves could be kind of similar, but just consider the difference between automatic and intrusive. Automatic is like every time um, someone's kind of short with me, I automatically think they must be mad, right? That's like uh, me acting out of a false belief about myself or like a pattern I've had in my life before, you know, like a history of people, you know, being angry and being passive aggressive, not really telling me. So I'm, I'm hyper aware. That'd be automatic. Intrusive would be that I automatically or not automatically see that's, I think that's why your therapist can use them interchangeably, but intrusive would be like, I'm out in the world and all of a sudden something like is almost feels like it's like injected into my brain. I know that sounds aggressive, but that's intrusive. It just feels like it comes out of nowhere. It's like forced into my thought process and into my conscious that I could just dry, run over this person walking through a crosswalk. That's intrusive. And I f- that's why I feel like they're very different. Automatic can be out of like old patterns, old beliefs, um, unhealthy beliefs or patterns in our life. 
intrusive is like it's it's like pushed into our brain it's not consensual and again it's it's usually ego it's always ego dystonic and automatic thoughts can be either or it's they're just different in that way and again because the words themselves I, i think it's just the way that your therapist talks because you can see how you could just use those interchangeably without really realizing it but there is a i believe a big difference between the two Moving on to question number two. This question says, hi, Katie. My question is about therapy for my seven-year-old daughter. I took her to a therapist, one that was recommended by my therapist. And prior to my doctor's first appointment, I had a phone conversation with the child therapist and asked permission to stay present in the room because of my own past trauma and to ensure her safety. Totally reasonable. She's only seven. The therapist was agreeable and seemed to have no issues with this. Minutes into the first session, she asked me to step out. I asked if I could stay to make sure she's safe, and she refused, saying, I'm a safe person. Wow, one session in, Jesus Christ. I was confused, and despite the tears streaming down my face, she still asked me to leave for my seven-year-old's privacy. The door locked behind me, and I had a panic attack for the next 45 minutes. I called my therapist, and she was able to help me calm down while I waited. When I went back in, she said that they had done EMDR for an incident that happened at school. I was shocked. I am unsure how she could ethically do this in the first session without my knowledge or informed consent, without giving me the opportunity to research risks versus benefits of doing this on a child. And how could she ensure my daughter had the proper safeguards in place and stabilization tools before attempting to process anything? My husband is livid because he had a terrible experience with EMDR. I also do EMDR and understand how emotional and taxing it can be. Am I overreacting? Is this in any way a normal process for kids? It's not. We are going to pursue a different therapist, and I felt completely disregarded in my request to stay in the room. I was abused as a child multiple times by people who said they were safe, including by a priest, and my mom had left me alone with them. I feel so guilty that I potentially did the same thing and wasn't strong enough to stand up and protect my daughter after being backed into a corner by this professional. I am so sorry this happened to you. Now, I'm going to give you a full picture of what it should look like since you're going to pursue another therapist. I want you to kind of get an idea of what should have happened. So that was completely unethical and incorrect and wrong um, because your daughter is so young. So there is, and different states have different laws around the age, but it's anywhere in my memory in all 50 states, and I'm sure different countries have different laws as well, but anywhere from the age of 12 and up to 18, you can participate in therapy without a parent's consent but there has to be, like, you have to have certain reasons. Like, there would be harm if the parent was involved. You're, you're able to get yourself to the therapy appointment, you know, without assistance from the parent. You're also able to pay for it without, you know, doing anything uh, illegal or like that. And also, you're able to emotionally and psychologically, I guess, like, participate in the therapy. So those things have to be in place for children at the ages of like 12 and going up to 18. Obviously, each state's different. Some are 13, some are 14, but it's around that age group. You can participate without the consent of a parent, even though you're technically not an adult yet. So there's that. So I personally never seen a child without parental consent, but I can understand sometimes, especially if the parent's the one doing the abuse, why that's helpful and why that's important, okay? So there's that. When it comes to you taking your daughter into a therapy appointment and you already asking to stay through that first session, the therapist should have just let you stay through the whole time. Now, I have seen uh, patients, my first patient ever 
was an eight-year-old girl and she her mom just waited in the waiting room. She never came in. We met, I met with them in the waiting room like briefly and her mom had filled out all the paperwork and I asked her if she wanted to sit in and she said no and the girl was fine. And so we did that that way. However, you as the adult and as the parent have the right to stay in the room at whatever comfort level you and your daughter discuss so that you make sure she feels okay, right? Because again, like you said, you were left with people who were supposed to be quote unquote safe and were abused and and that's not okay. And so of course it's going to be triggering for you. Hence the panic attack. I totally understand. Um, I've, there's so much wrong with this. I'm glad you're looking into another therapist because this is all sorts of fucked up. So it's unethical for her to treat your daughter without your consent and to do EMDR in the first session. I'm like, did she build up resources? Like first session, what? First session is usually for anybody who's been in therapy or anybody who hasn't, the first session is like a get to know you. It's like um, asking about history stuff, what's bringing them in today. You know, do they have any questions about the therapeutic process? You talk through uh, what's called informed consent. Now, obviously, this would have to be done with the parent and the child because the child isn't old enough to offer that, but the parent is. So you have to talk them through like when confidentiality would be broken and when we would have to potentially report child abuse. Like all that's really important when you're treating minors, letting people know if they tell you somebody's hurting them, you have to report it. And that's a very key component of the work together so that they don't feel that you're breaking their confidence and they can't trust you. So there's, and there's much more to it, but you walk through all of the essentially laws that protect them, but could also be seen as a, as, as a breach of their confidentiality. And so that's kind of part of that process. I'd be livid just like your husband. This is completely unethical and unprofessional. And I'd argue there's even probably components of it that are illegal. So that's like the first session is usually just that, like walking that through to asking, you know, if you have any questions and even talking about some goals that you might have, like how would you know that therapy has been successful? Um, And that's because we're putting together like a kind of treatment plan or some, some plan for our work together. We that's the key to therapy being beneficial. And so the fact that that wasn't done, EMDR, from what I understand, again, I do not practice EMDR in my practice and I'm not a licensed EMDR or I guess credentialed uh, EMDR therapist, but my friend, Dr. Alex Altman is, and I've also talked to other clinicians who are, and you build up resources first and you don't even do like the tapping stuff, maybe for a few sessions, maybe for quite a few sessions. We don't do any of that. So the fact that she like went in and did that right away makes me nervous. It's also without your consent. Um, and there is, I do want to add in, I guess kind of my final thought about this is that when you work with children, there is a point where if if they feel okay, right? Like after, let's say two, three, maybe four sessions, maybe more. But after a few sessions, your daughter might say to you, mama, you can stay out. I'm okay going in. And you let her go in by herself. If you're okay, you know, again, this is like a process and something you can talk with the therapist about. Maybe it's, I've done um, back in the the day, I've seen a few teenagers. So I know this is like, they're older because I usually only see adults, by the way, um, like in my private practice as a licensed clinician. When I was gaining my hours, I worked with a lot of kids. But so anyway, I sometimes would have parents in for like the first half and then not in the second half or vice versa, flip-flop, so that we could be on the same page. They would know the homework. I'd talk with my patient to let them tell me what they're okay with me sharing and not sharing and all of that stuff. Um, 
because I do see it as like family work and things that we're all going to need to do together. So I think there is a really important key of having the parents involved, but they also need privacy. Need They need a safe space to talk about what they're going through, especially if it maybe involves you as the parent. I'm not saying this is the case, but I just want to talk about like the whole picture of it. And so there would have come a point, not this first session, but there would have come a point where your seven-year-old could have gone into session without you and you would have waited in the waiting room. But it, it wouldn't have, it shouldn't have happened like this. It shouldn't have been forced. The door shouldn't have been locked. That's fucking weird also. Um, so many things that I just do not like about this. And so no, you're not overreacting. I'm glad you're looking into a new therapist. And that's kind of the protocol. So just, I just want you to know so that when you go forward and find someone else that we don't have anything unethical or illegal happening there as well. Um, yeah, that's, that just really pisses me off. So I'm sorry you had that experience. Again, unfortunately, therapists are just human and not all humans are good at the job that they've decided to have. And not all people, you know, are operating at hundred percent every day. We also make mistakes. Um, but to have that happen on a first session with a child, I just feel like is very, very wrong. Um, yeah, I, I've never, it's just, it's not ethical. It's just wrong on so many levels. So I'm really sorry. And I hope you find a better fit with the next one. And I hope your daughter's okay too. I hope it wasn't uh, upsetting to her and she feels okay with what happened, even though obviously you don't, but I just hope no more damage was done because of that experience. Let's move on to question number three. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This question says, Hi, Katie. Am I a horrible person to fantasize about being sexually assaulted or raped and then fantasize about someone, a father figure, coming and saving me? I was sexually abused by a family friend for six years. Nobody knows about this except for a few friends. And I definitely don't want this to happen to me again or to anyone in this world. A background info on why a father figure? My father was always unavailable emotionally as well as physically. And now that I am with him, he always gaslights me and shames me for everything that I do. What an asshole. I feel like he is ashamed of me as he was not there in my childhood and growing years. I've always been in search of a father figure and eventually found my high school teacher. He's one of the most open-minded, intelligent, and sensitive, or sensitive and warm people that I've ever witnessed. I wish he was my father. That's very normal. I fantasize about him being my father and I um and I fantasize when I get sexually assaulted or raped that this teacher would be the one to come and save me. I hope this makes sense. Even writing this down feels so horrible and feels like I'm so broken, weird and ashamed. How do I bring this up with my therapist and what the hell is wrong with me? 
I hope this makes sense and thank you so much. This totally makes sense. And I know this doesn't help and this doesn't stop the shame spiral, but what you're experiencing is actually incredibly common and there's nothing wrong with you for thinking this way. The reason that we're going through this, uh, we're having this issue is that your father not only was emotionally neglectful, but now he's emotionally abusive and he's gaslighting you. Now, I don't know if your father's a narcissist or he's just a bad a bad father, but either way, we're left with these, with the damages, right? Just because someone maybe doesn't intentionally harm us doesn't mean that we don't have a right to feel upset and hurt by it. And with your dad's absence and now abuse, we have this like hole in our life for a father figure, right? We have a hole where our dad was supposed to be and he hasn't been. And now that he's even around, he's a total asshole and super abusive. So we have this void in our life because I know it sucks and unfortunately there's nothing, we, we have no control over this, but our caregivers, our primary caregivers, usually usually mother and father, could be grandma, grandpa, could be aunt, uncle, depending on your culture and how you were raised. But those first few relationships, it's usually like two relationships. One is incredibly important at the early stages when we're first born for, I think it's like six or nine months. And then we can bring in another and have another close attachment with a second figure. Those first two relationships are incredibly important to our overall development as a human when it comes to our attachment, our self-worth, um, our uh, safety and security feeling to go out into the world because we have this like safe foundation that's laid. It, it's just so vital. And the fact that your father wasn't there left this this hole there. Now, I know that sounds like you're unfixable or broken or something. No, no, no. I don't mean that at all. I mean, your dad didn't do his job as a father. And therefore, we've been looking out into the world to find someone to fill that role. And of course, this teacher is the one that you, it's like everything that you wished your dad could have been, right? Therefore, it's really, really attractive to be like, well, I want to put him in this dad hole because it just, it fits perfect. Look at this. It's so perfect. The but because he's not your father and he can't be your father, right? We try to create scenarios in which he can actually save us and and do the things maybe we wished our dad would do. Now, I know you're like, why am I thinking, dreaming about being assaulted or raped? Because we want, it's, it's the vulnerability, it's the hurt, it's the pain. I honestly would hypothesize that this like assault and rape represents something different for you. I would assume it represents like the hurt, wounded child of you feeling that like when you needed your dad to like kiss your boo-boo and put a bandaid on it or hold you and tell you it's going to be okay, we didn't get it. And so now that we're older, we are like attaching those scenarios to the ones that we wish we'd had support with as a child. Does that make sense? So I don't really think it's so much about what's happening to us. It's more that we we agree in our mind that those, the assault and rapes are the type of scenarios that warrant that care. It's almost like it has to be that bad for us to even be able to get the the attention and the affection that we so desperately need and crave. I hope I'm making sense. And so because that person like fills that role so perfectly and he is so kind and he's everything that you wish your dad was, then you now want him to come to your rescue and do the things that you wish your dad did. But because those things don't seem to be big enough or make enough sense and it can feel kind of weird to think like, well, I want that guy to like hold me when I cry and to put a bandaid on my knee if I trip and fall. 
instead, because that's very childlike, right? That's inner child work stuff that we should be doing in therapy. Then we we reach out to these like bigger, more um, what we think is like, I don't know, maybe a more valid reason for needing support. And we daydream about that and him coming to our rescue. I know that's kind of a difficult way of talking about it, but I hope that makes sense. That's kind of where my brain went when I read this, because it's incredibly common to have these kind of fantasies or daydreams. And it's all about being cared for and rescued and not ever having someone that we felt we can count on. Because there's an interesting, there's a lot of debate around like, well, if you're a single mother or a single father, you know, you can be everything for your child. And some people agree and some research disagrees. And uh, most of the research believes that we do need to have two different caregivers or two parents in our life. Or even if it's not a primary caregiver, it's like another part of the family. Like for instance, my brother was definitely a father figure for his, what would it be? It'd be like his his wife's sister's child, so his niece um, through marriage because she was a single mother. And so he did a lot of the dad stuff for that. And I'm not saying it has to be mother and father. I'm just saying that those two roles, having more than one person in your life as a child growing up is really important because there's usually one caregiver who is the more nurturing type. And then we need another caregiver to like test our boundaries, to be more rough play with us, to teach us, um, what's okay and not okay. It's, uh, it's funny having, uh, what we would traditionally call like the father role, they find fathers tend to play more rough with their children, which is true. I remember my dad throwing me in the air and I loved it. And my mom was so terrified. She'd be like, put her down, you know, or he'd hold my arms. He'd have me hold onto his wrist and he'd hold onto my wrist and he'd swing me around in the living room. I loved it. And then he'd let me go into the couch and my mom be like, what are you doing? Um, But that is important development for children because then they're able to uh, speak up and place healthy boundaries around what's okay for them with their body and what's not. And so when someone plays a little rough with us as a kid, you if you have a guy at a good time, but let's say my dad did it too hard. And I said, dad, that hurts my wrist. Why would you do that? That's me asserting myself. And then him listening validates that my experience is important. My thoughts about it are valid. And you know, I get to make choices about my body. It's a really key component of our development. Now, it can come from having, you know, two moms, two dads, any uh, a grandma and a mom, any kind of combination that you can imagine. It's just having two separate people with kind of two different ways that they interact with a child is really key in our development. And obviously it expands as we uh, get older and are able to hold more than like two close connections with people. It just takes us a few years in our development to be able to do that. And at the beginning, it's one and then it moves into two, like I said earlier. I hope I'm not getting too off topic. But anyways, all of that is important. And I feel like not having that father figure has left this hole and we're wanting to place this person into it, which is incredibly common and kind of part of us trying to heal. But my encouragement for you would be, I mean, to bring it up with your therapist, I know this is hard, but you can bring it up just like you said it to me. If that's too uncomfortable to start, I think it's fair to say, and I'm sure they already know, but if they don't, you know, my dad was always unavailable emotionally and physically. And I've come to um, wish that this one teacher was my dad. And that's how we can start. We can start that conversation. And maybe a few weeks in, you can say something like, you know, I, I feel horrible, but sometimes I fantasize about this teacher rescuing me. And the therapist will probably ask, like, what kind of scenarios and what do you want to rescue from? And then if you're comfortable, you can kind of share a little bit more. You know, sometimes I, I wish that something bad happened to me. 
so he could come rescue me. And lately I've been having these fantasies, you know, little by little, as you feel comfortable and as you get a positive and validating experience from your therapist, but telling them and then doing that inner child work, which I will be launching the inner child workshop. Um, I'm just finishing up my like uh, the actual lessons for it right now. Um, and then I have to put together some pretty homework stuff for you guys and figure out how I want to do that. And then I will, you know, I'll let you guys know. So follow me on Instagram if you are interested in that. Um, I also will probably talk about it here, but doing that inner child work with your therapist is going to be incredibly key. And there's a great book. Um, I've used it in videos of mine and even with the inner child workshop that I'm putting together. It's just called The Unavailable Father. I forget who wrote it, but um, it's a blue front. It has a girl like holding her knees into her chest and there's like a guy, a dad in the background. That's the book. It's in my Amazon uh, shop. You can go to amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash Katie Morton. You can find it there. But nothing's wrong with you. You didn't have a father figure when you needed one most and now you're trying best your best to fill that role. Okay, let's move on to question number four. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This question says, hi, Katie, what can I do to get better at being comfortable when things are actually okay? Interesting, right? I have struggled with anxiety as well as depression off and on throughout my life. But whenever things are good, I feel like I'm constantly waiting for the other shoe to drop, um, which then only puts me in this never ending loop of having anxiety about not having anxiety, then wanting things to start to get bad until they inevitably do. And then I fall into a depression. Isn't that just the worst? It's incredibly common, unfortunately. And the truth about this is that being uh, being okay and having things go well is very uh, foreign and we're not used to it, right? And so it doesn't feel okay. We essentially are more comfortable with what we know, which unfortunately isn't feeling good. Now, the truth about getting more comfortable, it's going to take some of this like internal work. Now, it might help before this happens to come up with a few facts or mantras that we can dig into when we are in that okay space and we're feeling incredibly uncomfortable. Now, a mantra can be something like, you know, being uh, like, this is one that my patient that I was working with her and she didn't love it, but I'm just going to throw it out for you. Maybe it'll work with you. Is she was supposed to say, I do deserve to feel okay or feeling okay is something that I can accept. Now, mantras work for some people, they don't for others, but you can come up with one that maybe works for you. So you can have a mantra that you say, and then maybe write these down, and try them out now before we're in the position to actually use them. Because usually, even from just like writing them out and saying them to yourself out loud, like your gut reaction will tell you whether you can use them or not. They might not be able to be as like what I would call maybe more positive things. It could be like a bridge statement more where it's like, I'm open to believing I could get comfortable with being okay. Or it's possible that with work, I could get to a place where I'm kind of comfortable with being okay, right? We could have some of those things too. Now, another thing is checking the facts. And what I mean by that is sometimes we get so caught up 
in false beliefs. Like that if I get comfortable, bad things are going to happen. If, uh, if I allow myself to relax, then I can be really harmed. Uh, I'm such a bad person. I'm so broken, right? Shame talk that I don't deserve to feel okay, right? We can have all these false beliefs. And if you find those coming up a lot, I want you to check your facts, okay? Versus using thoughts as facts because thoughts are not facts, right? And having a thought more than once does not make it a fact. So consider those and, and check if you have any facts to support those false beliefs. Uh, spoilers, you probably don't. Now, the third and final and probably what I would consider to be the most helpful, but kind of the most tedious is paying attention to your thoughts about what's happening and challenging them. Again, going back to those bridge statements that I talked about using those kind of as mantras. So you can kind of do two birds with one stone in this scenario. So if you have these thoughts about like, um, oh my God, something bad is going to happen or like, uh, I just want things to be go back to being shitty because this is, it makes me too anxious to not feel shitty. Or like, what am I supposed to do with with all this free time now that I'm not feeling so terrible, right? And we're, we're just like spinning and spinning and spinning. Whatever thoughts get you going and you find yourself like moving faster and faster, right? And spinning out, we need to acknowledge those thoughts, jot them down and argue back with a bridge statement. So if some of those thoughts are like, I don't deserve to feel this good, um, you know, could we consider maybe... I'm open to I'm open to trying to change my belief about me deserving to feel good. Or I'm open to the possibility that with work, I could not hate myself so much, right? I, I know those things don't sound very positive, but trust me when I tell you that that small shift will feel incredibly different and you won't feel quite as negative or or spiral out so quickly. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so, Paying attention to those thoughts, jotting them down, arguing back with bridge statements will help you. And then, I mean, just finally, because this just popped into my head too, is that by kind of sheer force of will, because everybody's different, we can kind of do some exposure with this where we start to feel okay and we try to acknowledge what's coming up and almost like using those resources and coping skills to calm us down. So to manage your anxiety, doing full body shakes, uh, journaling, talking to a friend, talking to a therapist, getting that connection that we need, going for a walk, um, organizing a part of our house. Um, we can, you know, take a, a hot shower and then end with a cold because jolt, sometimes a cold jolt of water will like snap us out of these like spiral thoughts or like anxious building. So we can do some of those like resources to calm our system down before we spiral out into another bout of depression, right? Um, and that kind of resets our nervous system. And so you can give yourself an opportunity to do that. So we're kind of, instead of trying to manage the comfortability, we're trying to manage the anxiety. Um, and I have tons of videos about anxiety and its treatment. So you can check those out as well. I even have an anxiety workbook available in the iTunes uh, bookstore. Just look up Katie Morton anxiety workbook. It's there. Um, and that could help as well. Okay, let's move on to question number five. This question says, Hi, Katie. I found your podcast a couple of weeks ago during a, ma um, a major depressive episode, and your great advice has provided me with a lot of comfort. That is so wonderful to hear. I'm so glad you found me. Yay. Anyways, here is my question. Why does it feel as though I've, quote, gotten over my eating disorder? For context, at the beginning of the year, I began feeling all of this guilt around eating, and I've always sort of hated my body. On top of that, I was extremely stressed with my A-level exams in the summer and it, uh, it culminated in this sudden need to control and restrict my food. Yep, can't control anything but ourselves, right? So then we control ourselves. 
I started counting calories and tracking my steps and developed all of these weird habits and rules around food. And at first I loved it. But within the last month, I've lost control over food and found it harder and harder to restrict starting breaking the rules that I set for myself, feeling extreme guilt about it. Isn't aren't eating disorders fun? They just like beat us up no matter what, what we do. Um, feeling extreme guilt about, uh, about it to the point of self-harming, a bad habit that I picked up around the same time, if not earlier in my eating disorder, which has only worsened. Gradually, the guilt kind of subsided as I told myself I needed to eat to focus and pass my exams. Very true. And now I'm at a place where I don't restrict. And if anything, I punish myself by eating too much of foods that I had previously feared. Please help. I feel like such a failure for not being able to restrict for more than a few months. And and like I never um, even had a problem to begin with. Ugh, eating disorders. Fuck them. They're the worst. So a couple of things are happening. Number one, we need to find some better ways for you to manage stress and upset because controlling our food and our body isn't isn't it. It's not going to make us feel better. So check out my video about, it's called 25 Coping Skills. I encourage you to try some of those things out. See which ones feel good for you. Um, there's also a ton in the comments below that video that could maybe offer another idea or something that could be helpful for you. I think that that is a great place to start because we need to, and there's obviously a reason your eating disorder exists. I don't know if it goes deeper than the stress about A-levels and, you know, feeling really overwhelmed and with school because I think it probably goes from like childhood or something because you said you've always hated your body. And so I'm very curious about that. If we need to do trauma work or something, then we might want to find a therapist who can do that. But all that to say that eating disorders are chameleons, meaning they will slip swap the behaviors and the symptoms in order to hang around. Again, because we have to consider that our eating disorder is a coping skill. And until we heal, like think of, um, hmm, think of an eating disorder like pneumonia, right? It's a, it's a, a sickness, right? And we have all these symptoms as a result. Now, as we try to treat the pneumonia, some of those symptoms are going to go away, but other ones can sometimes get a little stronger, right? Or if the virus in our body wants to continue living, right? Because its goal is to not be killed off by treatment or a bacterial infection, let's say it is, it's, it's going to try to spread in different ways and do different things. It's almost like uh, with the coronavirus, right? We have all of these different versions of it because the goal of that virus is to stay alive and be transmittable. And so it's going to uh, change itself, its structure, so that it can keep doing that. Eating disorders are just like viruses. And so when we try to attack it and we're like, I can't restrict, I have to focus on my exams. Like we essentially are telling our eating disorder, shut the fuck up. You're not helping me. The eating disorder is like, mm, okay, well, we can't restrict anymore. What else can we do? Because we still need that sense of false control because there's no control in eating disorders, spoilers, but it gives us that sense of false control. So instead of restricting, it's like, okay, well, we'll, we'll, we'll binge a little, we'll overeat sometimes. And that will be how we control our body and use our eating disorder to cope with how we feel. We'll try that. I've had so many patients swing from like, you know, uh, binge eating to anorexia, to bulimia, to something in between, to all those things. Eating disorders are shapeshifters in order to hang on and to still, you know, quote unquote, help us cope with life. Spoilers, they don't help at all. They only fuck things up. But they do the shapeshifting to hang around, okay? So overall, that's why it's still here. That's why it's changed into doing something else. And you definitely have an eating disorder. This is definitely a problem. 
I know it's always going to tell you you're never sick enough for help. You're not bad enough to even warrant anybody caring about it. And that's kind of part of the like negative, nasty self-talk that comes along with an eating disorder. But I'm not surprised that the self-injury is kind of hanging out with it because they're both coping skills. And if we're not using one, then we're going to use the other and vice versa, or we can use them both at the same time when we're really having a tough time. But overall, my goal for you would be to find a therapist. And you could even do some internal work ahead of time, but find a therapist who understands eating disorders and can help you. And then figuring out what purpose your eating disorder serves. And that's what you can do on your own kind of now is just And you might not be able to come up with an answer. There's nothing wrong with you if you cannot come up with an answer. It's just something to consider. Like, when did it start? How long have we been having these bad thoughts about our body and food and stuff like that? Um, Do we have any trauma in our life? What are some of the struggles that we are trying to cope with, right? Stress of school, put that on the list. Like, where do we think this is coming from? And like you said, you you think you've always kind of sort of hated your body, even when you were younger. So like, what was going on then? Did somebody say something, do something? You know, what is it? Um, Is our mom or dad really weird about food? That can sometimes happen. Um, Yeah, consider it because the overall work of eating disorders is to figure out that the reason that it exists and then to heal that wound. So that could be by doing inner child work. That could be by doing, um, you know, some trauma work, EMDR, things like that. It could be through finding better ways for stress management, uh, navigating self-talk. You know, there could be a lot of different things. It just kind of depends on what the cause or what the what the purpose is for your own eating disorder. Okay. Let's move on to question number six. This question says, hi, Katie, I hope you're well. I am. I'm wondering at what point is it considered an eating disorder? I know you've mentioned in the past about spending most of your day thinking about food, but I really don't think I do that. I just avoid it. Interesting. Part of the problem is that I get distracted and forget to eat meals until I'm told to. But I also just feel disgusted and guilty when I eat, so I avoid most meals. See, here's my question. So you're telling me I don't really think about food all day, but then I just avoid it. Avoiding is an action. It's something that we have to focus on to do. And so I'm curious, because you're probably very hungry, how often you think about avoiding food. How often do you think about the ways you're going to get out of it? And when you do eat, how long does that guilt and the thoughts about food follow you? I would argue that you spend most of your time, most of your day thinking about food. Okay? And I... I would argue back against that, like forgetting to eat. We can forget to eat for like a couple hours where we get like engrossed in something or we're doing something that we can't get away to get a meal, but we're aware of our hunger unless we're so disconnected, but that's a whole nother thing. That would be more of the trauma work that might need to be done. Okay. So um, it says, I'm also extremely picky and do struggle with self-image and body issues. I don't really focus too much on the numbers, but I do sort of feel like this might be becoming more of an issue than it used to be. It sounds like it. I never thought I could have an eating disorder, but people in my life have been acting suspicious and questioning my eating habits and my behavior lately. And I'm starting to wonder if maybe this is turning into something to be concerned about. Thank you. It sounds like it is. I I mean, you all know that I I'm not a huge fan of the DSM for things, especially like eating disorders, because not everyone's symptoms line up with a full diagnosis. And that does not mean that we do not have an eating disorder. That's just some random criteria they decided to include. And 
the the catch-all bucket is OSFED, which is otherwise specified feeding or eating disorder. And a lot of people fall into that bucket. It used to be called EDNOS, which I just prefer. It's easier to talk about. So anyways, um, you definitely have an eating disorder. I push back against the like, but I don't really think I think about food all day. I think you do. Um, and the extremely pickiness. I'm always suspicious when someone is really picky. I know some people are picky eaters. I'm... I. I'm just always suspicious. Maybe it's because I'm an eating sort of therapist. Like I don't run into a lot of people who have no issues with food who are extremely picky. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm really interested in that. And also the fact that you said you struggle with self-image and body issues. I'd be curious how long that's been going on and when that started and how that relates to your relationship with food. And what would what would happen if you there was no other food available you had to eat and it was something that you don't necessarily like. It's one of your like picky things. How would you deal with that? If the answer is, um, I would burst into tears. I mean, you have to eat. You can't not. You can't omit or avoid. How would how would you deal with that? I've had patients say everything from I'd cry to I'd throw up to I'd do whatever. Um, all very eating disorder responses. So um, I'm just curious. Anyway, um, okay, what else? Let's see. It's definitely something to be concerned about. I would reach out. I would get some support because this definitely sounds like an eating disorder to me. Okay. Now there was a comment on this that says, in addition, when exactly does disordered eating behavior turn into what's considered an eating disorder? I know that my relationship with food is not normal. I count and I control and I obsess over calories all the time. That's an eating disorder, but I don't restrict them a lot. I know the severe restriction of food is a diagnostic criteria for anorexia, and I don't think I'd fit it. That the amount I eat is very is very close to the recommended amount for someone of my height. However, my BMI would be considered low. Is it possible that I'm still just disordered or does the BMI or any degree of disordered eating automatically make it anorexia? Now, what eating disorder it is, again, it doesn't really matter to me because they're all the same. I know people want to place like this one's better than that one and this one's better than this one. No, they're all the same. I'm sorry. Don't let your eating disorder tell you that one is better than the other. They all suck and they're all terrible and they're all like chameleons and mind fuckery that cause us to feel worse about ourselves. And it's a way that we can kind of control what's going on in our lives, or it's a way to kind of numb out from what we're feeling. Either way, no matter what one it is, it will just call them eating disorders. Now, for this question, I honestly believe that any disordered eating is an eating disorder. It's it's like a spectrum, right? How how invasive is it? How much of our life is sucked up by it? I have a lot of people that I know in Los Angeles who definitely have extreme disordered eating habits, like only eating certain types of things from certain radiuses. People are all about like, it can only be organic or it can only be, you know, farm raised or blah, blah, blah. And if you, you know, again, what if you're at a party and you can't confirm that that stuff is organic or is farm raised or is this, that, or the other? Can you eat it anyways? And I know people are like, Katie, that's a ridiculous ca- uh, categorization, but I disagree. I think that a, a quote unquote normal eater would per- have preferences and would prefer to eat th- certain things and not others. But given an, you know a potluck situation at work or a family, you suck it up, buttercup. You just eat it. That's just how it is. And it might not be your ideal scenario. Trust me, I have family that's like very country when it comes to like salads. Salads is a very loose term. And sometimes I don't even know what's in that stuff. And I'm like, well, I can eat it. It'll be fine. You know, um, I don't love it, but I'll eat it. And so, and I don't have any more thoughts about it either. 
because that's the thing about an eating disorder or disordered eating behaviors is when we go against one of those like unspoken, unwritten rules, we feel guilt and shame about it afterward for however long. Um, okay, so the fact that we are counting calories and we're controlling and obsessing, again, spending a lot of our brain power and our thoughts about food and its restriction or its its caloric amount or whatever is an eating disorder. Uh, a quote unquote normal eater does not do that. And whether or not it fits a diagnostic criteria for an eating disorder doesn't mean it's not one. Um, again, it could be OSFED, the otherwise specified feeding or eating disorder, because it maybe doesn't quite meet criteria for another one. But the DSM, I, I, I don't have like facts that this is going to be true, but I believe it's on its way out. I think we are going to to get rid of it and move into more ICD stuff like ICD-11. If you guys don't know, that's another uh, manual for criterion when it comes to getting something covered by the insurance companies. I don't, because they've said that they're not going to create another DSM. And I think that there's so many problems with it that I wouldn't be surprised if we don't kind of lose much of this random criteria because forever, if you guys don't recall, it wasn't it until 2013 when the new DSM-5 came out that anorexia still had that you had to lose your period as one of the diagnostic criteria. I'm like, uh, hello, dudes have eating sores too, right? So anyways, long story short, yes, this is an eating disorder. It doesn't necessarily matter what you weigh. Um, BMI is bullshit. Never listen to it. It's uh, for many, even in medical models, it's not used, but I know it is still in some places, but essentially BMI doesn't take into consideration anything, bone density, muscle mass, anything like that. It's just height and weight. Like, fuck that. So BMI is bullshit. And um, yes, this is definitely an eating disorder. And I would reach out and get some support so that it doesn't, you know, it doesn't have to continue. It doesn't feel good. I know nobody likes having an eating disorder. We can pretend that we do because we're hiding in it because again, it's a coping skill. And sometimes it's helpful to like thank our eating disorder for showing up for us, for protecting us from the emotions and experiences and flashbacks. Maybe we couldn't handle at the time for giving us something to focus on when we weren't able to acknowledge, you know, another discomfort that we were going through or grief that we were experiencing. You can thank it for serving its purpose, but now we got to let it go because it is like dragging us down, right? Um, And getting the right help will really, really help. Obviously, getting the right help will help, (laughs) but it'll, it'll be beneficial and you can overcome it, okay? Let's move on to question number seven. This question says, hi, Katie, what is your advice for highly sensitive people who would like to become a therapist? It seems like we might be more affected by hearing traumatic stories. How can we avoid this? Yes, 100%. The weird thing is, I am a highly sensitive person. I'm not, I, I don't know. I mean, I feel like it's a spectrum. And when I read that book, The Highly Sensitive Person, it, a lot of it definitely resonated with me. But I'm able to be a therapist and separate that from my life. And here's how. Now, my best advice is boundaries, boundaries, boundaries. Now, I know that sounds obvious. But the kicker is that most therapists do not have conversations with their patients about boundaries. And I find it to be really key and part of my own safety as well as the safety of my patients to do it at the first session. And I usually do it again, like on the fourth or fifth, like reminder of what's okay and not okay and why those boundaries are in place and what those boundaries mean. I've even had patients in the past where I've asked, like, are there other boundaries you wish were here? Or like um, uh, one is like, if my patient dissociates, I'll always ask them, like, are you okay if I touch your arm or back or is that off limits? And that's a boundary, right? A physical, but also emotional boundary. So anyways, long story short, 
the way that we as highly sensitive people can be therapists and not become overwhelmed and burdened by our patients' stories is healthy boundaries. And these boundaries can, uh, there can be a couple of ways we can set them up. Obviously, we set the ones up with our patient about when we're available and what we're going to do for them, meaning can they call or email? Can they text? How long till we get back to them? Um, 24 hours is usually the turnaround. Like um, if we're on vacation, do we allow ourselves to disconnect? It's very important to have someone cover for you. Um, also leaving work at work. Like I don't do one, one like saving grace. And this is where COVID kind of like, I think is why a lot of people are burnt out is it's really important to have separation between your work and your home physically. Like I think COVID fucked a lot of us up because we were working from home and I can tell you for Sean and I, it's hard. Uh, That's why we were building a studio above our garage so that we can actually work out of our home because there's something about, even if it's just a walk across your yard, walking out of my office. Back in the day when I worked in Santa Monica, I would walk home and just having that separation where like I did all my notes, I filed all my things, I locked my filing cabinet, locked the door, shut down the office, put everything away, you know, washed my dishes, blah, blah. I had this like little routine and I grab all my stuff. I check to make sure all the, everything's turned off and I've got all my goods and out I go and I walk home. And that was like, my work is done. Regular life starts. And it's really important for us to have that. And I think that is one of those like unspoken boundaries that needs to exist is a separation of work and life. Um, so that's key. Not doing work outside of work hours. I know you're going to want to like read books and check out workbooks. I struggled with this a lot, but that needs to be done in your office. So I used to order things on Amazon or whatever and have them shipped to the office directly. And then I would read them on my lunch break or before or after patients, but I never took that stuff home because if I took it home, I would want to do it. And then as I got better at not working from home, I could bring books home and put them you know, on my bookshelf if I'm not using them currently at the office, but I always kept the things that I was working with there. And it's just having that separation is really key. And then also my final tip, your own personal therapy all the time. I know you're like, Katie, that seems ridiculous. And what if I don't have any issues? Trust me, you're going to need that support. You're going to need that insight and you need a safe place to be able to talk about what it's like to be a therapist. Also to a person who gets it super healing, super helpful. You will inevitably have something come up through your interactions with a patient. Like let's say, I don't know, someone's going through a divorce and you too have gone through a divorce. That's going to be triggering for you and you need to have that safe space to talk about it so you can process your own shit so you don't bring it into your therapy sessions. Um, Yeah. So those are my tips. There are tons of ways that we can avoid it and be okay. We just have to be aware and we have to be more mindful about some of the things that we do and put those you know, boundaries and separations in place. Moving on to question eight. This says, hey, Katie, I have a question about attachment in the therapeutic relationship. Since I've had therapy, I've noticed that my mood becomes more and more dependent on how my therapist responds to me. If she has a good day and is nice and sweet to me, then I'm very happy too. If she's a bit stricter with me, I feel depressed all week. For example, I've become so hard on myself that I've hurt myself and I hear all I hear are her quote unquote severe comments in my head all the time. It's almost like I get voices in my head from her. Um, Also, if it's positive, she's generally very sweet, but I'm also very sensitive to how someone relates to me. Sometimes I'm wondering how to change this because I'm too ashamed to say this to her. Do you have an idea? Yes. First of all, I would tell her 
because this is really good to know. And what's happening is what I would call enmeshment. And it could also be kind of part of codependence, but it just seems like enmeshment when we don't feel like an independent person. We don't have any healthy boundaries. So someone else's emotional state becomes our emotional state. And I don't think that's as much, I mean, it's kind of part of attachment. I would be curious about your relationships with your parents and other family members growing up. Like, did you, because a couple things, did you feel like if your mom was in a bad mood, you were in a bad mood or vice versa? Do you feel like you're walking on eggshells a lot, hoping to not upset people to like stir the pot? You like try to keep everything just right. Um, do you find yourself like extremely people pleasing in order to to elicit this happy response? Um, do you struggle to make decisions on your own without, you know, conferring with someone? Hmm, I'm trying to think of other things, but I'm just very, I'm very curious less about attachment, more, although attachment can, it can be like just next door to this, but it's more about enmeshment and our difficulty with boundaries and our difficulty feeling autonomous, meaning like independent on my own, separate from other people. And I'm I'm curious about your upbringing with this. I don't know if you have a narcissistic parent or if there's been any abuse in your childhood, but I'd be very curious about that because that's sometimes leads to behavior like this. Um, I do want you to know this is ex- incredibly common. Enmeshment and codependence. If you don't know, codependence is like when um, they usually use codependence in terms of uh, addicts and the people in an addict's life that do things that allow the addict to continue living, like enabling behavior. And I don't want to um, misspeak here, but the codependence as a whole is like when you have uh, an excessive reliance emotionally or psychologically on a partner. And so you support the other person's illness or addiction and allow them to, you know, it's an imbalance in relationships. So anyways, but um, enmeshment, I think is what's happening here where like their emotions are your emotions and there's no, no uh, boundaries in place. And so Sometimes that can come out of abuse, that can come out of having a narcissistic parent, or it can come out of having a parent who has borderline personality disorder as well. Um, yeah, so the, those are some of the things that I'm I'm suspicious about. I have questions. I think that it would be helpful if you don't want to tell your therapist about this as a whole, you could maybe tell her that that you feel like you struggle with enmeshment and other people's emotions become yours, if you feel okay saying that. You could even give an example using her. You could say, you know, sometimes if I think you're in a good mood, I'm in a good mood all week. And that could be an easier way in. So then maybe we don't have to be as vulnerable yet. I would encourage you at some point to share the breadth of this. And I'd be curious if there are other relationships where this has happened as well. Um, but letting her know that what you think is happening is enmeshment. She can suss it out with you too. Um, attachment to me is a little different because attachment has more to do with like a more, it's more about the relationship with the person and wanting to be with them all the time or be able to check in with them, be friends with them, have them be a parent. It, it's about uh, wanting to deepen the relationship and the connection where this is more about her emotions becoming your emotions and you can't help but be a sponge for other people's feelings. And that's why boundaries are going to be really important for you. Um, but let her know. And I think that, that that could hopefully help you acknowledge when this is happening and do your best to manage what's coming up put uh, with your therapist you can figure out what boundaries should you have in place and how can those be placed and upheld what would that feel like 
And give yourself some time, patience and compassion while you do this because it's hard. And you've probably been doing this in your life and relationships since you were a child. So it didn't happen overnight. So we can't fix it overnight, but we can get better day after day as we try our best to place boundaries around ourselves so that we feel that we can manage our own emotions and someone can't just come into our world and spin us into a frenzy and leave. You know, it's it's important for us to learn that. So, But be patient with yourself because it does take some time. Now let's move on to question number nine. This question says, how do we stay strong when we're unsafe? While I'm not physically unsafe in my current situation, my boundaries are consistently violated and I have to listen to verbal abuse and um, my dad endures every day. The only motivation I find is anger and spite, but I'm so tired of being the angry guy all the time and it doesn't feel healthy to sit inside of those negative emotions when I'm constantly in fight or flight. What can I do mentally to help? I feel like my well is empty and I don't know where to dip my bucket. What a great analogy. Um, it's really hard. I'm sorry you're going through this. Now, my goal for you would be to put in put together a plan to get the fuck out of there. Now, that might mean saving money. That might mean reaching out to another family member or a friend. I've had a lot of, uh, even friends in my life who've told me that when they were young and their parent was neglectful or abusive, they stayed with another friend for like the last year of high school or something. Um, and I've had friends I remember growing up who would stay with different people. So that might be an option looking into that. Um, I also would encourage you, you know, to spend as little time at home as possible. So putting together a plan, limiting your time. And then we're going to have to find some ways to, to fill you up on your own. Now, these can be things that uh, feel good to you, like uh, painting, uh, playing music, listening to music, playing video games, things that are fulfilling. And I don't want them to be complete checkouts. So I use the video game term a very uh, lightly meaning it shouldn't be our only go-to because a lot of my patients will tell me that even though they tell me the video game is like, well, I interact with other people, they like zone out and there's no actual breath in. We don't feel rejuvenated afterward. And so you might want to take some time and just be curious and try out different coping skills to see what helps you feel rejuvenated. Um, Like one, I have one friend in particular, my friend Joanna, Whenever I spend any amount of time with her, I just feel totally refreshed. It's like a complete breath in. Also, my friend Lauren's kind of like that too. I There are certain people I spend time with. I mean, honestly, almost all of my close friends like Rocio, Abba, they're all like that where I just feel like recharged. So for me, it's that connection with people that is recharging. Also going for walks outside or getting out of my house with Sean and doing some activity. Those are all recharging for me. So be curious and try out some to see what's recharging for you because that's why you're, you feel like your well is empty. We, we're, it's being robbed every day by your dad. And so we're going to have to do our best to fill it up and to protect it as much as possible. And that's why putting a plan to get out and um, spending the least amount of time possible in that situation. I know it's not always, you know, we ha- there are limits to what we can do, but let's try to find a way to fill us back up and to protect what we have put in there so we can kind of store it a little bit. Um, yeah, and there are so many resources. If there's anybody that you feel is okay to talk about, to speak up, like if we can get you into, I don't know how old you are or what the situation is, but if you're in school, there are often, you know, counselors and psychologists at schools you can talk about stuff with, or, um, you know, finding a counselor or therapist if you're over the age of 12 or 13, depending on where you live, you can go see someone, um, or even just, you know, friends and people that you can at least, teachers can also be good resources. Knowing that if, uh, you know, if abuse 
like physical abuse, verbal abuse, if abuse is happening, some people may need to report this. Just ask them about that before you share things and get yourself into a situation that could maybe make it more dangerous. Um, Yeah. Okay. Just want you to have all the information so you can make a good decision for yourself. Let's move on to our final question. Question number 10 says, hi, Katie, why is it that I am so stressed out by uncertainty and new things? Maybe anxiety? I don't know. I get really stressed out when I meet new people and I get really stressed out when I'm asked questions that I didn't expect or when someone unexpectedly talks to me. Sometimes I can't cope with not knowing what comes next in a film and I spoil uh, I spoil myself a bit to ease the anxiety. I've done that sometimes when I'm like, are they going to die? I'll look it up on my phone because I can't take it. Sometimes I'm really scared to learn new things in case I learn something that I didn't expect. Why is that? When I search uncertainty and stress, the talk is always about major life events, but why am I so stressed out by uncertain things in everyday life? And maybe I should add on that I kind of find my fear to be legitimate. I do find people and life to be quite unpredictable, but other people seem fine and they live in the same world. This is an anxiety disorder. Anxiety is characterized by uncontrollable worry. That's what's happening here. And that's why you have, you get so stressed out. I would, every time you want to say I'm stressed out, I want you to say I'm so anxious because I really think that's what's happening. And so my encouragement to you would be, I mean, I have a shitload of videos about anxiety. Check that out. I have my anxiety workbook for sale at the i the iBook store. Yeah. Or the iTunes bookstore, whatever you call it. Anyways, that could be beneficial and get in to see a therapist and start finding better ways to manage this. We're going to need some different coping skills. We're going to need to better understand our anxiety when it started, where it comes from, what exacerbates it, what makes it feel a little bit better. But this to me is not stress. This is anxiety. Um, Yeah. I know that's kind of like, sounds like a simple answer, but I know it's not a simple answer. That includes a lot of work on your own. But every time you want to say you get stressed, you're, you're actually anxious because that's why things feel so out of control and you have uncontrollable worry about it. And they feel like simple things. Anxiety doesn't, um, isn't always about these big life events. It's honestly feels like it comes out of nowhere for no reason. And it can be about the smallest thing. Now there was a comment on this the same, but I freak out over really small things. If I could go grow, blah, blah, sorry. If I go grocery shopping, don't know why that was a tongue twister. And the plan I made in my head of what I will buy and what I buy if that item is not there, that sounds like you're uh, letting your anxiety run the show and you're doing all this prep work to manage it when in fact we should be exposing ourselves. Exposure therapy will probably be the most healing, but okay. So if I go grocery shopping, I made this plan. Um, oh, and if that plan isn't working, I panic. Maybe that's because of social phobia. It's very possible. That does also happen if I can't eat from the plate that I plan to eat from and so on. I am nearly not able to do or not not able to think about big changes because every time I do, I freak out. So maybe as an add-on, why is my brain so focused on plans and how do I stop this? How do I stop breaking down about chips? Okay. This again is the anxiety. Now it could be social anxiety or social phobia or Part of me feels like yours isn't necessarily socially related because social phobia remembers when we we want to avoid certain social situations that we feel would could embarrass us or we could be judged or thought about poorly. We don't want to be in social situations. Both of these questions seem more about like everything in life, which would be what I call generalized anxiety disorder, which is when we have uncontrollable worry about things happening in our life. And obviously the key word being generalized, right? It it applies to like everything in our life, not just the social aspects. And so 
I really encourage both of the people who ask these questions to reach out and get some support. Anxiety is completely manageable. Sometimes it includes medication, sometimes it doesn't. Like I said, I have that anxiety workbook available. You can, you know, it has videos and homework and assignments. I even talk about panic attacks and things like that. Goes through the whole gamut. That's a great place to start. Um, if therapy is not available, if it's too expensive, I think my workbook's like 20, 25 bucks, something like that. Um, so much more reasonable. But that's what's happening. That's what's causing this. That's why it feels like it's throughout your entire life because it is generalized. It doesn't just apply to one type of thing. Um, but it does get better. And with help and support, we can overcome it. I find, you know, figuring out maybe the cause or the reason for our anxiety or finding other ways to calm our system or uh, ways to to soothe us and remind us it's okay or ways to catch our anxiety thought before it spirals out. There's a ton of tools and techniques that we can use to better manage. I have a ton of videos about anxiety and how to better manage it. So you can check those out too. Um, but yeah, that's definitely anxiety driven. And that's why it feels like it's all throughout your life. I hope you found those answers helpful. Thank you so much for asking them. Thank you so much for all of your support and all of your love. I really the kind comments and all of the great questions and how you interact with one another. It's all just very uh, life affirming for me. It just makes me feel really good. So thank you so much for being part of this community. Have a wonderful rest of your week and I will see you next time. 